You're listening to a podcast from the Tudor and Stuart Ireland Conference. The 8th Annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference took place at Queen's University Belfast in August 2018. The conference was generously supported by the School of History, Anthropology, Philosophy and Politics, the School of Arts, English and Languages and the Institute of Irish Studies, all at Queen's University Belfast and by Marsh's Library. As in previous years, the majority of papers were recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media, in association with HistoryHope.ie. There are now more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences freely available. To access this archive, go to HistoryHope.ie forward slash podcasts or visit TudorStuartIreland.com. In this episode, a recording of a paper by Dr. Coleman Dennehy from University College Dublin and Dr. Francis Nolan from Maynooth University. Their paper was entitled The Location, Space and Impact of Parliament in Early Modern Ireland. This paper found its origins in a series of on-the-corridor conversations relating to an assortment of pictures, maps and other descriptions of parliamentary locations and parliamentary buildings. These can tell us much about the nature of Parliament, about parliamentary actors and how the surrounding location and communities might share a space or a city and how they might affect one another. This paper will, whilst desperately trying to avoid repeating the Churchillian phrase about us shaping parliaments and then parliaments shaping us, it will attempt to take stock and then to arrive at some conclusions and ideas as to how parliamentary spaces in Ireland um, and how this might have shaped um, uh, the experience of parliamentarians, the city in which they were held, uh, and people generally, and perhaps even contributed in some way to the development of political events in Parliament. The Irish, like many other nations, regularly think of their Parliament as a place. Kildare Street, College Green, Westminster. There are some academics that still argue over whether we should speak of Parliament, a Parliament, or the Parliament. Whether it's best described as a singular political event or an ongoing presence within the Constitution, even when it is not being convened. For me, uh, perhaps for us, it's a, uh, an institution and one that moved around a considerable amount in the Middle Ages and indeed into the early modern period. Even after its convening was restricted to Dublin from the end of the Tudor period, it was not until the Restoration that it, de- that it developed a presence on the College Green site, moving to the north side twice thereafter, once for a few weeks for the Jacobite Parliament in 1689 at the King's, Inns, King's Inn, or should that be in the King's Inn perhaps, and also for rebuilding the current structure on the same site when they moved to the far reaches of Oxmanstown to the Blue Coat School on Queen Street in, in North uh, uh, Dublin, inner city Dublin these days. So, as you'll see from the slide, parliaments and great councils, which is a parliament-like institution used sometimes for more localised matters and quicker convening, featured many times outside of Dublin and indeed outside of the Pale. The locations very well illustrate the primary areas of Anglo-Norman colonisation. So we've got the main Pale areas, then that sort of road down through Carlow and Kilkenny and then breaking out into the into this sort of North Munster region, uh, the Golden Vale, where parliaments could gather safely and which were accessible to many of the English areas. It's also worthy of our attention, although perhaps not surprising, to observe that settlements in Connacht or East Ulster were not locations for parliament, and nor did they have a consistent, dependent relationship with parliament throughout the Middle Ages or indeed with the Dublin-based administration. So they're still sort of Anglo-Norman areas, but they've, 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 they've they're Anglo-Norman in culture, but they don't have consistent relationship, perhaps, with Dublin in terms of expecting protection and then providing taxation in return. 
Many of the locations were well able to facilitate Parliament. Uh, remember, for the earlier parliaments, it's still a unicameral assembly, uh, a single house assembly, and so just one large chamber was the essential. Usually larger towns like Dublin or Kilkenny facilitated, but it is noteworthy that we have an assembly sitting in locations such as Ballydoyle and Tipperary, which is just outside of Cashel there. Ballydoyle was chosen by Win William of Windsor with the express intention of making the members as uncomfortable as possible and thereby making their voting and financial assistance all the speedier. So literally you find a desolate location with little amounts of shelter and little amounts of food, thereby hoping that they'll vote the funds all the quicker to get the hell out of there. As for the, uh, probably, possibly the same with Ballyhay, it's just a little country crossroads, Ballydoyle is the same. Um, I'm not sure there may have been a significant religious building at Ballyhay, um, at Castle Connell, just outside of Newbridge, part, just the countryside, just outside, there was a very significant church building, but today it looks like a, a you know, very much in the countryside sort of a place. Um, as far as the buildings themselves goes, Richardson and Sale, Queen's University's own geo sales have pointed out, the Parliament buildings in the Middle Ages were virtually always churches or conventual buildings. They were usually large spaces and frequently had purpose-built meeting and assembly rooms such as chapter houses, so they're the perfect location. Now, as Parliament was almost consistently growing institution from the beginnings of the Tudor period, the locations of them naturally changed. Legislation had been adapted in the 15th century to restrict Parliament from sitting anywhere outside of Dublin or Drogheda, unless the Lord Deputy assembling Parliament was an English peer. Now, this was primarily to reduce the influence of an overmighty Anglo-Irish peer who might seek to bring Parliament deep into his region of influence such as the Earl of Ormond might do in Kilkenny. So like the original Poynings Law, at least the original intention of it, it could be argued that this was intended to protect MPs from the Lord Deputy so that they wouldn't be too easily bullied. Not that this was always the reason for travelling away from the East Coast. Indeed, Parliament was convened on occasion outside of the Pale, for example, in the Tudor period, in the earlier Tudor period, when Leonard Lord Grey brought Parliament to Kilkenny, Cashel and Limerick, uh, in one go, as did St. Ledger, to Trim and Limerick as well, with an idea of bringing around a big, impressive institution of the state to impress on the Gaelic lords who were coming in under a surrendering grant of, of what was, might be expected of them. As the size of parliaments grew, so too did the necessity of gathering in a location that could facilitate the expanding number of members, their attendants, the judges, the clerks, and the other necessary persons. Throughout the Tudor period, and particularly so from the period of plantation, the Irish Parliament was growing at a considerable rate. The House of Commons in 1560 numbered about 98 members, but, by three, but were 300 by the end of the reign of Charles II in 1685. The temporal lords as good as tripled in the 17th century, and bishops from over, all over the island might now well attend. Previously, there had been just ones from within the, the interanglicos. Even losing the abbots, the priors, and the proctors, that attended Parliament up until the Reformation, these new additions clearly made a net increase. Now, this is not to suggest that all MPs and Lords would attend Parliament at the same time. In fact, num numbers could be sparse in the extreme at some points. Less than eight Lords were attending the House of Lords in the, in the mid-1640s. It's during a war period, but it's very interesting. That's, you could hold the House of Lords in, in, in an average academic office in, in many cases. Um, but at busy times such as the opening of Parliament or moments of high political drama or important legislation being passed, Parliament could easily have a few hundred members attending at the same time. So it's not surprising, therefore, that at the last meeting outside of Dublin, briefly in Drogheda in 1586, that Lord Deputy Perrett opined that Drogheda was no longer suitable, I quote, in respect 
of the inability of that town to bear the train of a parliament. Indeed, it might seem counterintuitive that as more and more of the island came under the suzerainty of the city of Dublin Castle, the more parliament retreated into the Pale and then exclusively into the city of Dublin itself. So this obviously mirrors the increasing reluctance of early modern monarchs, so for example the French or the English, to travel about their kingdom and instead you make the people come to you so you get the presence of the big palaces like Whitehall or Versailles where all the nobles come to you instead of you, like in the Middle Ages, traditionally travelling around the place. So from the early 17th century onwards, Parliament was convened in Dublin and mostly in secular buildings. Although, again, meetings were not confined to a singular building within the city, nor was there a specific corner of the city that might be considered to be the ongoing location for um, Parliament. At this point, it might well be worthwhile to acknowledge that matching the growth of parliamentary membership, so too the bureaucracy grows considerably, and it's no longer just two chambers of the House of Commons and the House of Lords. We need a chamber for each speaker of each house, at least one for the clerk of each house, several committee rooms and frequently other accommodations necessary, which Francis will talk about in a few minutes. So for example here, uh, the old Parliament House and store now burnt, that's just after the Earl of Ossery's Lord Deputyship in the, in the Restoration period. This is the more modern Tulsal, um, but, but it gives you an idea of the sort of, they, they have a very similar style, you, the one in Kilkenny is still there, Carlingford, they tend to have a similar style. Um, the, these are the courts at Christchurch, that's Skinner Row, just the, the little bit that sticks out at the side. There are other locations around. Um, until it found a more regular home at the Trinity end of Dame Street, it moved around somewhat. In 1613, 1634 and 1640, Parliament sat in Dublin Castle for the most part. Once the 1641 rebellion became a war, the Commons and probably the Lords too were located to the Thalsall, which is a civic building for the city of Dublin, located approximately where Jury's Christchurch sits now. Um, the Dublin Convention, which was not a parliament, but I think a parliamentary type assembly, gathered at the four courts in Christchurch complex. And as we've already mentioned, the Restoration Parliament gathered at Chichester House, um, followed by the Jacobite meeting at the King's Inns, roughly where the four courts stand today on the river. Parliamentary committees, an integral part of Parliament and frequently where much of the work was done and the real decisions were being made, sat at many locations around the city, including on occasion in members' private homes. In July 1641, for example, the all-important queries were discussed in committee held in Patrick Darcy's house at 6am in the morning, just not as early a start as the labourers of Kinsale, but nonetheless for MPs to be sitting could see Audley Mervyn and the rest of the boys showing up and Mrs. Darcy in her dressing gown wondering what's the, what's, what's the commotion downstairs. He would need a decent-sized house as the committee was to contain all members of the long robe. These are the lawyers, along with all other such uh, others of the house as pleased to resort to them. And that's a very serious committee. It's, it's very influential. In many respects, Dublin Castle made for a good location. It was relatively secure. It held a central position within the city. It was close to the Lord Lieutenant and most of the rest of the government, many of whom sit in Parliament. Um, and it was close to the parliamentary and the legal records in Birmingham's Tower. And as you can see, there's several large rooms that could easily hold Parliament. Now, whether they both sit in this house with a, a wall down the middle, or maybe one might sit in the hall here, remember the Lords can go relatively small. Some rooms are being consistently used as courts and living quarters, but easily fit a parliament in there. In the same way, remember there's very few purpose-built parliamentary buildings in early modern Europe. Um, the Irish one is amongst the earliest. Um, so you make do with whatever buildings you have. 
Um, but it could also be problematic. As Parliament grew over time, the accommodation in the castle became somewhat limited. The castle was also a fortification as, and as such was deemed to be unsuitable, particularly during wartime. Catholic MPs who walked out of the Commons after the debacle that was the election of the Speaker in 1613 complained that, um, that, musket- that, complained that the presence of musketeers in the corridors leading to the chamber were purposefully intimidating. In the debacle, um, in the violence between the Catholics and the Protestant MPs, when it did break out uh, in the dispute over the Speaker, which had been predicted, both sides perhaps with a, a little bit of a fear of a sort of a St. Bartholomew's Day massacre perhaps, um, we see such violence uh, when it did break out was an affront to an institution whereby its rules decorum was supposed to be um, observed, but so too to have it occurring within a royal palace is an affront to royal dignity as well. And when we see Wentworth come in, he's very much a man who will, who will very much um, um, vindicate these, these rights to dignity. Indeed, violence could and did take place in the parliamentary complex after it had moved out of the castle. In February 1663, Sir Brian O'Neill, being out on a bond uh, by the sergeant-at-arms, so sort of out on bail, um, was spotted by the sergeant-at-arms in the lobby between the two houses. He was invited to, and I quote, surrender himself. He refused, called me a drunken fellow, a knave, another base language. At last he began to ruffle me and take hold of the belt near my throat, whereupon I tripped him up on his heels, and then I sent him prisoner to my own house by two of my men. So he's holding prisoners, a House of Commons prisoner has been held in his house. I don't think the sergeant-at-arms gets a house as part of his job, so it's interesting that parliamentary activity as such takes place in all sorts of locations. Um, public access to Parliament was a very necessary aspect of its work. The Irish Parliament between 1613 and 1666 hears in a, well in excess of 1,700 petitions, and thus this made for a far more frequent type of business than legislation or giving counsel to the Lord Deputy. This necessitated a relatively open environment whereby members of the public could access various parliamentary offices and sometimes to the houses themselves. At Westminster, we know that pickpockets were operating within the committee chambers during committee meetings, and so suggests that a level of public access, considerably more than would be tolerated today, I might add, might well have been seen in Dublin as well. I wouldn't be too surprised if it was. So exactly how the Dublin Parliament controls this space and access once it takes control of its own buildings. I'll hand over to Francis to, to tell us. Thank you. Okay, so as, as Coleman mentioned, um, I'm going to examine Parliament's long, albeit punctuated, presence on College Green. Um, I'll be looking in particular at Chichester House, the predecessor of Edward Lovett Pierce's Parliament building. Considering the structure of the building, the sig- significance of its location and space, and to some degree the impact of Parliament's presence in Dublin in the 17th and 18th centuries. So Chichester House was built by Sir George Carew uh, in the late 16th century and it was intended as a hospital to accommodate soldiers injured in the Nine Years' War. After the war, it served as a temporary uh, temporary home for the four courts before it was purchased by the Lord Deputy Sir Arthur Chichester, from whom it derived its name. The house passed through the hands of a number of English government officials before it was leased by the Crown as a Parliament House in 1661. And as Coleman mentioned, with the exception of James II's 1689 Parliament, uh, it was home to the Irish Lords and Commons until 1729, uh, when the legislature temporarily relocated to the Bluecoat School uh, in Oxmantown to allow for the construction of the new uh, house. A site of increasing importance, as Parliament began to sit more regularly, Chichester House's deteriorating condition was an ongoing concern for the Irish government in the early 18th century. 
So you can see it here um, on Speed's map of Dublin there at number 10 uh, as the hospital um, just across from, from Trinity on College Green. Uh, there's no detailed exterior representation of Chichester House, but we can deduce what the building and its environs looked like from a couple of maps, in, including Speed's. Um, so Speed's map doesn't tell us a great deal, but it does suggest that Chichester House was a three-gable structure, which was typical of Tudor architectural style. Um, another map, which was um, Green Survey uh, of Hog and Green and the Mount, and it's held by the NLI, it offers greater detail on the exterior of the makeshift Parliament building. Uh, the NLI catalogue uh, dated to the mid-18th century, but it was in fact created by uh, John Green, the, the city's first surveyor, um, who took up his post in October 1679. So Green's depiction of Chichester House uh, as a three-gabled building tallies with Speed's earlier representation. It also suggests uh, that it had a number of, of chimney stacks as well, you can see that down there. Um, and this is a feature that was kind of um, confirmed by a 1709 Commons report on the building's condition. Speed's map and Green survey view view the building from different vantages. Uh, so the former, looking northward, shows the three gables facing onto Hogan Green, whereas the latter, looking southward, uh, suggests that the side of the building ran parallel with the green. Um, so you can see it there from just running along. Um, so a plan of Chichester House from 1727, which was drawn up before uh, demolition, confirms that Green's positioning of the building uh, is accurate, and you can also see the position of the building in relation to Lover Pierce's later structure on the, uh, well, your right-hand side there. Um, so the floor plan reveals much about access to Parliament. Uh, to enter on foot, it was necessary to pass through two closely spaced guardhouses um, just there. Um, so that led to a narrow court then, sorry, um, uh, which in turn led to a rather discreet entrance and corridor. If we consider the importance of architecture in projecting authority, it's apparent that Chichester House fell, fell rather flat, um, and Robin Usher has noted that the building's location was inauspicious, standing on the eastern end of College Green, where residential and commercial buildings concealed the facade from the street, and that this compromised its symbolic thrust. Comparing Chichester House and Lover Pierce's later Parliament House, Edward MacParland has observed that the latter was bigger and better in every way, and that the assertiveness of the new building was as obvious politically as it was architecturally. This, of course, is a comparison of apples and oranges. Lover Pierce's creation was the first purpose-built bicameral Parliament in the world. Its construction in bright white stone and at a scale still unmatched by another singular build in Dublin must have transformed the city skyline. By the time of its demolition, on the other hand, Chichester House was a 130-year-old wooden Tudor pile, damp, sagging, and unfit for purpose. Chichester House was selected in the 1660s because it met the accommodation requirements of the Irish Parliament, um, and were, it was basically derived from its operating needs, and Coleman referred to that earlier. At a minimum, at this stage, it required two chambers. A capacity of 250 was necessary for the Commons, which reflected the fact that a full complement of members uh, rarely, if ever, attended Accommodation for the speaker was also required, and it was desirable to have a conference room, meeting rooms for committees, and that would avoid those 6am meetings in members' homes, as well as staff accommodation. Much of the extant information on the building's interior comes from a lease made by John Parry, Bishop of Ossory, to the Crown in 1673. Chichester House was described as including a large room wherein the Lords sat, two committee rooms for the Lords on the same floor, a stairhead room, a robe room, a wainscot room with the stairfoot, a conference below stairs wherein the commons sat, a passage room leading to the committee room, two committee rooms above stairs for the commons, the speaker's room, two rooms below stairs for the sergeant-at-arms, three rooms adjoining for the clerk, two small cellars, a gatehouse next to the street, and on and on. Um, so it gives a, a good description of the, the interior. 
So evidence for the decoration of the building is scant, but there are references to members sitting on benches, to clocks in both houses, and to the decoration of the large chambers with wall hangings taken from Dublin Castle when Parliament was in session. There is an excellent image uh, of the House of Lords, which conveniently allows me to plug Coleman's forthcoming publication. <laughs> um, it was included in the Atlas Historique, which was pr printed in Amsterdam in 1708. Uh, it wasn't drawn from sight, however, and it seems unlikely that it's a faithful representation of the interior. So gaining access to the building through the gatehouse and narrow courtyard off College Green was not easy, and as Glenn McKee has observed, the potential to control access was much greater at Chichester House than it was in Westminster, and you can see the comparison there um, of the two spaces. This circumstance limited opportunities for popular protest and for the direct lobbying of members, but it did not entirely curtail access. Coleman has mentioned one route through the formal presentation of petitions, uh, but there was another way for the public to engage with Parliament, and this was the Strangers' Gallery. In an Irish context, the Strangers' Gallery in the Commons has been tied to Love of Pierce's visionary design in the 18th century, but it did not originate there. It's not represented in the description of the building in the 1673 lease, nor is it depicted in the 1727 floor plan, but even in its increasingly shambolic state, Chichester House provided a gallery space for public consumption of political business. Um, there appears no mention of the Commons Gallery between 1661 and 1666, but it was certainly in use by 1695, and it was mentioned in the journals for that Parliament on a number of occasions. Access to the gallery was tightly controlled by the Sergeant-at-Arms, uh, but nonetheless, at Parliament, uh, attendance at Parliament sorry, was popular amongst the fashionable ascendancy crowd in Dublin. The welcome attendance of women in the gallery stood in contrast to the treatment of their counterparts in Westminster. And as Rachel Wilson has observed, Dublin ladies did not attend in defiance of the male political order, um, but with its blessing and encouragement. So Chichester House thus facilitated the development of a distinctly Irish political culture during the first decades of the long 18th century. And it was one that would endure after the construction of Love of Pierce's building. Um, and you can see there as well with Francis Wheatley's Irish House of Commons and Mary O'Dowd has written um, about female attendance um, at the, at the kind of later 18th, or in the later 18th century Parliament and women's patriotism as well. So women's presence was not always viewed positively. Uh, in 1788, Clotworthy Rowley remarked on the long sittings of the House and blamed the grandiloquence of members eager to impress ladies in the gallery. He argued that the desire of shining before them too frequently led gentlemen to substitute luminous orations for rational debate. As well as providing a significant space for women, the Strangers' Gallery provided a platform for ascendancy anxiety to manifest. manifest. In 1713, for example, an order was issued barring entry to Catholics. Um, so Coleman discussed the importance of decorum when Parliament was in session, and this, of course, would continue to be important in the late 17th and 18th century. So too, however, would disputes amongst members and peers. Um, on at least one occasion, tensions spilled out of Chichester House uh, and onto the streets of Dublin. Space and location had a part to play, um, and as you can see on the slide, um, the yard of Chichester House is positioned towards the, the rear of the building, um, and members would uh, exit and enter, or enter and exit, uh, through a very narrow um, passage on, onto Fleet Street. Um, so on the night of the 25th of October, 1695, then the speakers of both houses, Lord Chancellor Charles Porter and Robert Rochford, left the grounds of Chichester House. Porter had just been acquitted of treason uh, in an impeachment hearing in the Lords. Rochford, who had played a key role in the impeachment proceedings, let his disappointment at Porter's acquittal get the better of him on Essex Street. The following day, it was reported to the Lords that, as his Lordship was going home in his coach, and as he endeavoured in a broad street to go by a coach in which the Speaker of the House of Commons was, the Speaker of the House of Commons 
called out to the Lord Chancellor's coachman to stop, and afterwards alighted himself and took hold of the horses of the Lord Chancellor's coach and stopped them and then called for his mace, which was brought to him, and said he would be run down by no man and would justify what he did. To all which the Lord Chancellor gave no answer, but was obliged to follow the Speaker of the House of Commons as far as their way was the same. So a fight in Temple Bar is a sure sign that some things never change, uh, but it's also a reminder that uh, those who governed the island had to live in and interact with the capital city. This could take different forms. Uh, In June 1661, for example, the recorder of the House of Commons, William Davis, was ordered to inform the mayor that the house took notice of a large number of beggars who were spreading infections and pestilential diseases, and also of the dirtiness of the streets, the great quantities of filth and dung that lies in many yards and backsides within the said city and suburbs, the stink and smell of the blood and entrails of horses that are usually at the doors of farriers. Thank you for that one. <laughs> the mayor was ordered to remove the filth, to repair the city streets, and to put a stop to the dumping of rubbish on the Strand. In 1729, during the construction of the new building on College Green, access to Parliament's temporary home in the Bluecoat School in Oxmantown proved problematic. And on the 24th of September, it was ordered that the streets leading to the Parliament House be kept in good order and clean, and that no constables of the City of Dublin see that they be kept free and open. Or sorry, or that the constables of the City of Dublin see that they be kept free and open. And that no obstruction be made by cars, drays, carts, or otherwise to hinder the passage of members to or from the Parliament House. The order was subsequently transmitted to the Lord Mayor, along with another to the constables, instructing them to ensure that there be no gaming or other disorders in the passages leading to the House during the sitting of Parliament. The residence of members in Dublin uh, had profound consequences for the longer-term development of the city too, um, as the Protestant ascendancy remade Dublin to suit their purposes in the 18th century. Um, and this has been obviously covered um, by others. Um, so, of course, this included the building of a new Parliament House on College Green, but it also included the development of a fashionable or fashionable residential areas um, for those who sat in the Commons and Lords, and the eventual institution of the Wide, Stre- Wide Streets Commission in 1757. The significance of Parliament's establishment in the capital is be- perhaps best evidenced by the impact that the Act of Resumption had on Dublin in the 19th century, as members and peers, along with their families, left for London. An account of the city, published in 1822, summed up Dublin's ailing fortunes with the observation that it was formerly a great capital, the seat of legislation. It is now a great place of passage. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Tudor and Stuart Ireland conference podcast. If you would like to access the archive of more than 200 podcasts from previous Tudor and Stuart Ireland conferences, please go to historyhub.ie forward slash podcasts. All podcasts are freely available on iTunes and on SoundCloud. For more information on the annual Tudor and Stuart Ireland Interdisciplinary Conference, visit the conference website at tudorstuartireland.com.